Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 86. Today, the man who literally wrote the book on AI, Stuart Russell, is on the show. Like me, he is a British expat, currently professor of computer science at the University of California at Berkeley and director of their Center for Human Compatible AI. You know, the greatest privilege of doing this job is getting to talk with so many brilliant people and to experience that moment when I ask something and I see them make eye contact and I realize that they're giving me the greatest gift they have, their full attention, that they've turned on every cylinder in their brain's enormous engine because I've shown them that it's not going to be wasted. It gives me goosebumps every time because then it calls me to bring my A-game as well. And the time during the interview just disappears. I mean, I'm not aware of it. But then when it's over, I crash. I mean, I'm exhausted. That's when I realize how much I gave it. I hope that even a tenth of that conveys itself to you in these interviews, because the one with my guest today is a prime example. The book, by the way, is real, and it is Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach, co-written with Peter Norvig, which is the standard text on AI, used in 1,500 universities in 135 countries. I've been through it myself, and I can attest to its thoroughness. Stuart is an Andrew Carnegie Fellow, and a fellow of the American Association for Artificial Intelligence. He's also been to Buckingham Palace. In 2021, he received the Order of the British Empire from Queen Elizabeth. And last year, he was chosen by the BBC to present artificial intelligence as the subject of their annual Wreath Lectures. More than an academic and a popularizer, he is a prominent voice in the public policy sphere. You may have seen him as the narrator and spokesperson for the Future of Life Institute's 2017 viral video, Slaughterbots, which is a dramatization of the dangers that lethal autonomous miniature drones, equipped with facial recognition and shaped plastic explosive charges, could present if they were allowed to proliferate. And we'll be talking about that. His 2019 book, Human Compatible, Artificial Intelligence and the Problem of Control, is a must-read for anyone interested in the impact of artificial intelligence on humanity's future. And Stuart's dry wit makes it thoroughly enjoyable. Dry wit is one of the chief exports of Great Britain. As you can imagine, with Stuart's reach on the mainstream stage, we had a lot to talk about with respect to shaping public policy, beliefs, and knowledge about AI, and how our choices affect where it will take us. Here we go. Stuart, welcome to the show. Thank you, Peter. Nice to be here. So you've dived into the world of shaping mainstream opinion and public policy. Most academics would give a valuable part of their anatomy to avoid that world, even if only from an efficiency standpoint that that time is time not spent writing papers, because it's about as far as you can get from the tidy world of algorithms and perfectly predictable programs. So that suggests to me a driving duty or a purpose. Is that true? What is that mission like inside you? That's a very interesting question. I think, yeah, to some extent, I do feel a responsibility to make sure, to the best of my ability, that things go as right as they can go. And in recent years, I've 
come to be pretty convinced that things can go badly wrong if we're not careful. And that's one of the things that I want to talk about here. So the wreath lectures, which I thought were quite measured, the Guardian framed it as the absolutely terrifying dystopian vision of the obliteration of the human race. Mm. Is that what you were going for? <laughs> that wasn't the aesthetic I was hoping for, no. It seems a bit hyperbolic to describe it that way, but I suppose if you haven't been exposed to these issues before, and it's the first time, I think it does hit a lot of people that way. I find that too in my talks. As much as I try and balance the pros and cons, it seems that everyone over the age of 25 ends up petrified. And I think this is important. What I want to do here is see if we can give people some distinctions that are useful to them and what they can take away from this. Because the layperson is subjected by the mainstream media to people on one hand, Stephen Hawking, Sir Martin Rees, yourself, giving us warnings. Um, Stephen Hawking famously saying he thought we had 100 years left and connecting that to artificial intelligence. Yeah. And on the other side, there are equally equal luminaries like Andrew Ng, Rodney Brooks, Ray Kurzweil saying, don't worry. And the mainstream media only has a certain amount of time and attention span to devote on this. I want to give it what it deserves to help people who are trying to separate these what look like conflicting opinions from geniuses that are about as far apart as you can get on the scale of prediction. Help us tease this apart. Well, so I think, first of all, prediction is not the right frame to discuss this because there's a significant element of human choice in what happens. And so when people talk about climate, they're not predicting the end of the world. They're saying, if we do nothing, then this is how things will go. But we have a choice. We can do different things. And I think the same is true with AI. I do think it's possible to develop superhuman AI in a way that doesn't end up with us losing control. But I would say to those who listed, you know, Andrew Ng, Rod Brooks, Ray Kurzweil, and a few others, Mark Zuckerberg, for example, okay, we're going to make systems that are more powerful than the human race. How do we retain power over them forever? And that's a question, you know, if you don't have an answer to that question, then maybe you shouldn't be investing billions of dollars into creating exactly the systems that would be disastrous. So that's the first point. I think Rod Brooks is more of a view that we are a very long way away from human-level AI. But just across the bay from me at OpenAI, there are, Rod Brooks is retired and always worked on physical robots, not really on machine learning systems or reasoning systems or decision-making systems. But across the bay from me at OpenAI, there are very well-respected, highly cited experts who think that we'll have human-level AI in five years. I don't agree with them because I think the methods that they're proposing and using and trying to scale up are insufficient, but I don't have a proof that they're wrong. And certainly, when you look at some of the things that AI systems are doing these days, they are surprising in the sense that the AI systems are able to do things that most experts would not have guessed would be possible using those techniques. So we're talking mostly about deep learning at the moment. And some people think that if we scale up deep learning, we will get to artificial general intelligence. Others say it's 100 Nobel Prizes away. Where do you stand on that spectrum? 
I don't think it's 100 Nobel Prizes away. I think we're talking about the question of, is it different perspectives about how long we have until human level artificial intelligence arises? And what is the scale of our response? You mentioned climate crisis, and we have ideas about how big that is and how imminent that is. If I look at other existential threats, we know that one day, millions or billions of years from now, the sun is going to burn out. And by that point, we will have to find another star system to live in. That's pretty dire consequences that are guaranteed, but they're far enough away that it's just not worth starting work on that now. So does the disagreement between people like yourself and Rod Brooks and the others that we've listed in the spectrum boil down to difference of opinion of how far away that might be? I think the question of how far away it is does influence one's sense of urgency. I think most experts are pretty confident that human level or superhuman AI will be arriving in this century. And the consensus, if you said, what's the median? It's sometime around 2050, I think. And scientists in Asian countries have much earlier estimates, maybe even sort of 15 to 20 years is the median. For me, it's hard to say exactly. I think I would lean towards later estimates, like in the lifetime of my children is how I usually put it. But we also don't know how long it will take to solve the safety problem. And the safety problem also is already happening, right? So it's not that it only arises once we have super intelligent AI. It's already happening with social media algorithms that seem to be wreaking havoc all over the world, essentially breaking down civil discourse and political coherence and destroying democracies all over the world because they're optimizing an objective which was set up, whether it's click-through or engagement time, that objective was set up mainly to be aligned with the profit motives of the platforms. And its effect on people is just collateral damage as far as the companies are concerned. And the companies have known that. I mean, we now learn that Facebook has known this since at least 2019, if not before. And yet, because the algorithm is making so much money, they don't really want to change it. So that's an example of how things go wrong when you have even really stupid machine learning algorithms that are optimizing the wrong thing, but are deployed on a massive scale, right? The scale of the effect is not due to the algorithms being geniuses, but just the fact that we've deployed billions of copies of them interacting with billions of people. An example of what can go wrong accidentally, they weren't looking to break society, but they just wanted more views, but it changed the beliefs and preferences of millions of people to alter the outcome of elections and pandemic response in ways that could be measured in many lives. And you also are instrumental in talking about getting into shaping public policy, the conversation about lethal autonomous weapons, slaughterbots, video called by CNN, the most nightmarish dystopian film of 2017. I believe you said you were- Proud of Yay, good, you're looking for that. And at the end of this, when I show that video, I give people a trigger warning beforehand. I say, you might, this is what's going to happen. You decide whether you're going to watch this. So far, everyone has. And at the end of this incredibly powerful video that's designed to grab you by the limbic brain, you show up as the spokesperson, the lightning rod. Has being the lightning rod for that resulted in any dramatic experiences that maybe you weren't looking for, but went along with the territory? No, actually, it's a surprisingly 
positive. I think it's had an interesting impact. It's led to a lot of conversations with generals and deputy defense ministers and things like that, because I think a lot of people had simply operate under the assumption that if you're in the defense business, weapons are good, better weapons are better. Sort of like the same problem we have in AI. AI is good, better AI is better, right? And it isn't. And that's the message we've been trying to get across with autonomous weapons is that the issue is one of consequences, right? What would the world be like if we had widespread availability of lethal autonomous weapons? And our security, whether it's personal or social or international security, would be dramatically reduced. And we don't have to argue about the ethics or the definition of autonomy or any of the other things that are filling you know, interminable hours of discussion at the United Nations. We need to look at the consequences. And is that, is that the world we choose? Unfortunately, that message, despite making the movie, right, is still really hard to get across. So this is perhaps the thing that surprised me the most is how impermeable the public sphere is. And now the sequel is out. Were you part of that? Actually, no, I had nothing to do with the sequel at all. So in fact, I didn't even see it until the day after it came out. It does suggest action. It does suggest a treaty. Is that a recommendation you're aligned with? Yeah, absolutely. I think the details of the treaty, there are different kinds of treaties you could have, which have different properties. You can be very, very restrictive with a blanket ban, or you could have partial bans. One compromise that I talk about in the Reef Lectures is a ban on small anti-personnel weapons, which are the kind that present the weapon of mass destruction risk, the kind that can be launched in swarms of hundreds of thousands or millions to wipe out entire cities or entire ethnic groups or whatever it is you want to do. That kind of weapon just seems to me unequivocally bad, right? And we don't sell nuclear weapons in supermarkets for a good reason. It's not a question of some deep ethical mm -hmm. dilemma about that. It's just like common sense. And these weapons, the large lethal swarms, are just as bad as nuclear weapons, if not worse. Because you know, nuclear weapons are very inconvenient, right? They produce all this radiation. You can usually tell where they came from. They're launched by a missile. They're very expensive. It's pretty easy to detect the preparations for creating a nuclear weapon or using it. And lethal autonomous weapons are selective. You can just kill people you want to kill, leaves all the property. Mm. So many, many advantages, but just as lethal. Mm. So these definitely should be banned. And the International Committee of the Red Cross has basically agreed that that's the minimum treaty that we need. The reasons to look at other weapons, I mean, one is, you know, the slippery slope argument. Well, if you only ban some of the weapons, then there'll be a lot of creep happening. But this is interesting precedent of the St. Petersburg Declaration from, I think, middle of the 19th century, 1868, I think it was, which said that you couldn't have exploding ordnance below 400 grams. And basically, they don't want bullets that explode inside the body. And that was agreed by the major powers, mainly because it was felt that this would be inhumane and unnecessary, right? If you're already shooting someone, you don't need to then blow a big hole in their body as well. Then already, once they've been shot, they're already out of action as far as the military conflict is concerned. And so anything beyond that is gruesome and inhuman. And that ban has basically remained in place ever since. 
Right. So it's pretty interesting. And we could argue for something similar in terms of autonomous weapons, that we want a size limit such that anything above that would be okay, but those would be weapons that are large enough, expensive enough, high-tech enough that they couldn't be mass-produced and used for widespread massacres. So two questions about that. Since you brought up nuclear weapons, the SALT treaties are models for our response to that. But they depended, as far as I can tell, heavily upon verification. And for reasons that you mentioned, that verification is possible. It seems that verification would be very difficult or impossible with mini drones. Is the difficulty of verification a hindrance to such a treaty? It is, and it's been raised by the US among others, but I don't think it's an insurmountable obstacle. If anything, the verification for mini drones would be easier than the verification for chemical weapons. There are many chemical weapons that you can produce from standard industrial chemicals. Mm -hmm. And the way it works is that under the Chemical Weapons Convention, every nation has to have legislation requiring their chemical manufacturers to account for the production of all of those precursor chemicals and make sure they don't fall in the wrong hands to know their customer. Mm -hmm. And it's been pretty effective. And I think if you think about drones, yeah, we make small drones for civilian purposes, everything from toys to you know the drones that follow you around doing vanity videos to pizza delivery drones and building inspection drones and so on. All of that's fine, but there are very few of those applications where someone needs to buy 10 million drones. So is it a matter of a scale? Like I could build these in my basement just for any law enforcement people listening, not going to actually do that. The only barrier that would be hard for me to cross would be sourcing the plastic explosive. But you're only concerned on the manufacture and deployment of these at scales of thousands, is that right? Yes, I mean, that's the main concern. I Obviously, terrorists could do probably a bit more damage than they currently do if they were to build tens of autonomous weapon-carrying mm-hmm. explosives. On that scale, there's not much advantage to autonomy. You could do remote piloted attacks. If you, mm-hmm. As long as you've got... 11 friends, you can probably control 24 drones and send them out and do your dirty work. So I think that will be an issue. But even there, right, if you go into a supermarket or a drugstore in the US and you try to buy four packets of Sudafed, they won't let you. And it's flagged. And if you try and do that in multiple stores, I assume Mm -hmm. that there's actually something going off to the FBI. The same is true for DNA synthesis machines. It actually notifies the FBI if you try to synthesize disease organisms. So I think with a bit of constructive thought, we can come up with a verification regime that would be fairly effective. Nothing is perfect. Mm. But the question is, is it better than the alternative, which is completely unfettered availability of weapons of mass destruction? Do you think it would depend or that it would work more on a basis of a mutual defense pact like NATO, that the use of them by any nation would uh, trigger retaliation by the others or some other basis? So that would be the enforcement arm of the treaty. And there I know less about how the different treaties operate. I know a lot about the nuclear test ban treaty, which is not yet enforced, but if it does come into force, it authorizes occupation of a thousand square kilometers of the the suspect member state in order to do an on-the-ground inspection to see if nuclear testing is taking place. So that's a fairly strong enforcement clause. 
I would imagine that you'd have, as I say, I don't know what the enforcement consequences would be for chemical weapons, but in practice, when Syria used chemical weapons, Western powers destroyed half their air force. And no one batted an eyelid about that, right? No one is saying, oh, that's a terrible thing to do, you know, imperialist pigs, except possibly some of some of <laughs> Syrian friends, <laughs> Assad's friends. But yeah, and I think part of the effectiveness of the Chemical Weapons Convention is creating the stigma that then makes those kinds of enforcement actions possible. And people have to understand that these kinds of devices would in many ways be much worse than chemical weapons in terms of their effect on people's lives. Mm. And maybe we have to go through World War I again for people to understand that. World War I was where chemical weapons were widely used. And I think the estimates are something like 200,000 people were killed and another 100,000 people died over subsequent decades, basically coughing their lives away year after year after year. And that experience was enough to warn people away. So, you know, despite the various grotesque atrocities of the Second World War, chemical weapons weren't a big part of that war. So maybe we'll have to go through that again with autonomous weapons. Mm. But possibly one thing I'll say for social media is that atrocities become immediately and widely known. Right. And when you put out the Slaughterbots video on YouTube, everyone saw it. Who did you want in particular to see it and what did you want them to do? Well, so I wanted everyone to see it and to, in some sense, form a pressure group that would help make it possible for governments to change their policies and change their negotiating position in Geneva. That was probably a little naive in the sense that it's still not very high on people's list of issues. And that may change once it becomes real in the sense that we start to see real videos of robot drones hunting down and killing people. Mm, which is a good segue to talk about the future of general intelligence in terms of threats, because you've said on several occasions, at least, that when the media associates the Terminator with what you're saying, that they're confusing the issue and you've attempted to stop that for a number of reasons. And then you also have conversations where you talk about the robot that accidentally cooks the family cat because it's not aligned with our human values. And it seems that there's there's a gap, but it's a thin one between that robot and the Terminator. It's doing it by accident, for sure, but it could easily accidentally employ one of Bostrom's scenarios and have much more serious consequences than for felines. Is this at the point now where that conversation is of academic interest or something that people should do something about? So let me just go back and add a second point to what I said earlier. So the target audience for the Slaughterbots movie was not just people in general, but also the decision makers. For example, just in some sense to illustrate the need, when we premiered the Slaughterbots film in Geneva, the Russian ambassador said, well, why are we even talking about this? This kind of thing is 25 or 30 years in the future. Three weeks later, STM announced the Cargo drone, which is essentially a larger version of the Slaughterbot. They advertised it as having autonomous kill capability against humans using face recognition and tracking, et cetera, et cetera. So everything we put in the movie, they advertised as a product. So, and obviously that had been in development for several years already by that point. So also we had 
the Deputy Secretary of Defense of the United States, saying that the concern about Skynet is overblown. And that just says, again, this impermeability of the public sphere, right? The entire campaign around autonomous weapons had nothing to do with Skynet. No one ever said, oh, you know, we're in danger of creating Skynet. No one ever said, oh, these are going to turn into terminators that want to destroy humanity. They were either concerned about accidental targeting of civilians or, in the case of many in the AI community, the deliberate creation of weapons of mass destruction. And the fact that none of that had got through to the person making the decisions for the United States was very concerning. And so one of the reasons we made that film was that we wanted decision makers to understand what we were talking about. And obviously, writing op-eds and PowerPoint presentations was insufficient. So I think it got through to some of them. Not everyone, but I think it did get through to some of them. On the question of you know Terminators and robots cooking cats, the robot cooking the cat example is actually more to show that there's a strong economic incentive to ensure that AI systems are actually aligned with human preferences. Because that kind of alignment failure, even in a very limited context, such as cooking the cat for dinner, would have enormously negative consequences for robot manufacturers, right? Nobody, you know, if that happened, it would be, it would instantly go viral. You know, everyone would hear about it and nobody would want a domestic robot in their house. And so the point there is that high-tech companies, robot manufacturers, AI companies should absolutely be working on this question and should give up on the classical way of building AI systems where we just write down the objective and the AI system optimizes it because we're never going to be able to write down that objective correctly. So that means if you take that approach, you're optimizing a wrong objective and you're going to see those kinds of failures. What happens with Terminator, I'm not a super expert on the whole backstory of Terminator, but we create an AI system, Skynet, which is somehow super intelligent which has the ability to create new technologies. Its goal is somehow to manage our defense systems, but it's programmed incorrectly in some way. But I think there is a spontaneous malevolent consciousness mm. element to that story, which is always a problem, right? Yeah. And I think this is in the public relations of existential risk around AI. I think this is the biggest problem. Yes. Because so many of the movies... The problem comes when the machine spontaneously becomes conscious. And until then, it's just a calculator. Okay, we're splitting this one into two episodes for the usual reasons. And because I also want to add some color, some information here that can help with understanding this. Because I try as much as possible to not just pontificate about this stuff, but always head towards giving you something useful or making a call to action. You can thank all that Toastmasters and TEDx talk training for that. In other words, at the end of the day, I want to make a difference. So we'd spent a lot of time there talking about lethal autonomous weapons. And as you know from some of our previous episodes, that's a subject that's of immediate current concern and activism. If you're thinking of some objections to the arguments for limiting the development of autonomous lethal weapons, I would suggest you listen to episodes 40 and 41 with Peter Asaro, co-founder of the International Committee for Robot Arms Control, because he discusses what's wrong with them. You may also be interested in episodes 54 and 55 with Tony Gillespie, 
who applies system engineering principles to making autonomous weapons operate within ethical frameworks, such as the Geneva Convention. Stuart mentioned the Kagu Kamikaze drone, which you can find online for sale at, well, not Amazon, nor eBay. I did check. I threw in Etsy for good measure while I was there. But you can order them from the manufacturer, STM. They're a somewhat larger version of the Slaughterbot, carry a 1.3-kilogram warhead, have a 10-kilometer range. If you're listening to this in public, you're probably getting some strange looks about now. We do try to make life interesting. Just some explanation about the robot cooking the cat bit, since I did gloss over that culinary terminator rather rapidly. One of the examples Stuart uses to illustrate the hazards of unfettered AI is a hypothetical future domestic robot, think Rosie on the Jetsons, who is casting about one day for something to make for the family for dinner and the fridge is bereft of main courses when she spies the family cat and realizes it is a source of protein. You can guess the rest. That's probably a banned episode of the Jetsons in some vault. I brought this up because it's a rather arresting example of a scenario that is interpreted by many as a warning that the thing we should be afraid of is Terminator-style robots. Today it takes out Fluffy, tomorrow the human race. But as Stuart pointed out, that's not the point of the example. Instead, it's to illustrate how hard it is to align human preferences with AI. If you missed one thing, like how people feel about cats, then the consequences are unpleasant especially for cats, because the AI doesn't or may not have the common sense to infer that. This is called the value alignment problem in AI risk circles. It's closely allied to the control problem, and you can hear some good discussions about that in episodes 16 and 17 with Roman Yampolsky, professor of AI safety. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, hey, as long as we're mentioning The Guardian, they had a story a few months ago now about Italian researchers who had programmed a Pepper robot, that's the white one with the big eyes and a touchpad on its chest, to, well, as they put it, think out loud. In other words, to explain its decision process. When the human user asked Pepper to contradict the rules of etiquette it had been taught by placing the napkin at the wrong spot when laying a table, the robot started talking to itself. To explain itself, the video is hilarious because Pepper's voice is like Alvin and the Chipmunks, and it says, I think he may be confused, and asks him if he's sure. He is sure, and then the robot says, This situation upsets me. I would never break the rules, but I can't upset him, so I'm doing what he wants. <laughs> I know this is very anthropomorphic and sounds all three laws of robotics kind of stuff, and is the robot going to freak out from this mistreatment and run amok? But it's actually a very constrained environment, with the place setting being its world, rather reminiscent of the blocks world of Sherdlou some decades ago, so it's not general purpose intelligence. But the interpretation and the vocalization is still some impressive natural language processing. Next week, we'll conclude the interview with Stuart Russell, when we'll talk about what it means for an AI to understand something, or not, reasoning chains, and the latest research into artificial general intelligence. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. 
Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.